Amen. You're good. Oh, yeah, take that. I'll take this. Awesome, Kevin. Thank you so much. I, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. If we didn't have people like Kevin and Stephanie and, you know, others who get involved in this to figure out the numbers and the, I mean, <laughs> we'd be out on the street somewhere. Uh, I don't know, you know. Uh, so I'm so grateful for the hearts and the minds that are uh, focused on that task. And so we can focus on, or so that at least I can focus on something else, which we're going to focus on this morning. So, uh, when I say the word substitute, what comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Teacher. Everybody, oh, we automatically think teacher. What'd you just say? Projector. What? what? <laughs> I thought it couldn't get any worse than announcements, but now what, what are you saying? What? <laughs> He's up here saying, I don't know if you caught it. When he was talking about Water Day, he said, this, one, this one's going to be way better than next year. I was like, how do you know what next year's going to be? But either way. Uh, so you quiet down. So <laughs> substitute, right? We're talking about substitute. So I think about uh, Indiana Jones. You remember that famous scene, the opening of Indiana Jones, where he's, he's, he's there and he's trying to take that golden idol and he's got a bag in his hand and it's, the idea is it's got to match the weight of the idol. And so he's trying to substitute that bag for the idol so that it doesn't, you know, the, the sensors in there or whatever don't trigger all the booby traps that are around there to try to do it. And here's the thing. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. It's over 40 years old. So if you haven't seen it by now, you're never going to see it. So I'm not going to feel guilty about this. But just so you know, uh, it didn't work. Uh, the sensors, whatever whatever technology they were using, uh, you know, picked up that it wasn't the same weight. It didn't it didn't work, and so you know, panic ensued. And I sort of see the human plight like this: we're always trying to find something that is going to release us from whatever it is, from a guilty conscience or the pain of feeling inadequate or whatever myriad of strange difficulties that we struggle through in this broken world. None of the substitutes that we seem to want to put in place there that are going to fix our situation ever seem to work uh, in the long run. And we, you know, we, we try to be good on our own uh, or we try to avoid our pain by escaping through alcohol or drugs, but that just creates new pains along the way. We never seem to be able to escape from, from the, the problems that we face. We never seem to be able to be okay with ourselves by the substitutes that we created. The trap always gets sprung. But what if there were a substitute that could bear the weight just right and let us go free? That's what we're going to consider today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible with you or a Bible app and you want to follow along, if you'll find your way to Luke chapter 23, please. Last week we read about Jesus being bounced back and forth like a political ping-pong ball between the Roman governor Pilate and the Galilean tetrarch Herod. And Mike did a great job of examining that passage for us, didn't he? Most notable of that section, the most notable thing about that section was the stunning silence of Jesus, which Mike was able to draw some really salient points from in that. It was a very convicting message. At least it was for me, for all of us, I would think. Today, we're going to continue reading about Jesus's trial. He's he's brought back to Pilate again. And, and, And we're going to also be introduced to a new character. And one of the striking things about scripture is the way that characters are placed in the narrative. Oftentimes, not so much to drive the story forward, 
But oftentimes characters are introduced to help us understand the story, to to reveal something important about the story. And today we're going to read about one such character. Uh, it's, It's a character that we know so very little about, but who appears in all four Gospels in this same location uh, in the story. And it provides us really our first dynamic view of why these are events are happening in Jesus's life. Why what he's going through here is actually part of God's plan. We're going to unpack that more as we go. So we're going to dive into this. If you're there in Luke chapter 23, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 13. And I just want to read the whole section because I don't like breaking this part of it up. I want to read through it and then we'll go in and examine it together. All right, it says, verse 13, Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I'll have him flogged, and then I will release him. Then a mighty roar arose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was imprisoned for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he demanded, Why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded, and as they requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. All right, that's where we'll stop today. Okay, so there's a lot to examine in this text. There's a lot of drama unfolding here. Herod interviewed, mocked, and then sent Jesus back to Pilate, who now has to give his final verdict on Jesus's fate. And his verdict is that he has openly and thoroughly examined him on the charges that they brought, and he's not satisfied that this person has done anything deserving of death. You want him flogged? No problem. Punishment? No problem. Death? No. I'm drawing the line there. And the surface reading of this account almost puts Pilate in a sympathetic light. I think a lot of people have come to that conclusion. It's led some to place the guilt of this event solely on Israel. But we need to be careful not to do that. It's very important we don't do that as followers of Jesus. I don't believe that Pilate was trying to do what was right. I don't think... Pilate cared about justice at all in this. As Mike pointed out last week, we know Pilate from history, both from historical records and archaeological evidence. Philo, the ancient Jewish philosopher, wrote about him, as did Josephus, the Jewish historian, and Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, all make mention of this character Pilate. And according to their memories of him, he was a cruel, power-hungry extortionist. Now, granted, These were not his friends writing about him. Two of these historians had great reason to dislike him and paint him in a bad light. But we know that he had been in trouble with Tiberius Caesar for his cruelty in Palestine. 
In fact, this violent crushing of a protest in Samaria where women and children were killed was the final straw that lost him his job as governor over Judea. He was called back to Tiberius Caesar in Rome, and we lose track of him in history after that. But here's what we know. We know he was a Roman official, and he was naturally disposed to thinking of himself as superior to the locals that he was governing. And when we put together the the historical information with the gospel narrative, we actually get a picture here of Pilate staging a bit of theater out there on that on that uh, portico or wherever they were they were standing there's a little bit of theater here in order to assert his own sense of superiority and authority over the jewish leaders who had brought this man to them i don't believe Pilate wanted justice or was concerned about jesus at all he just didn't want the religious leaders to get their way in this situation they didn't want he didn't want them to have the upper hand And I believe because the church has had anti-Semitism in our history, it is vitally important that our reading of the gospel narratives doesn't lay the blame for Jesus' death on any one people group. It's so important that we see that. This was a Gentile Jewish cooperation here. This was the backlash of religious and political powers that be who wanted to maintain their control. This is the natural conclusion to humankind's rebellion against the authority of the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden. And this is where it leads to this moment here. So Pilate, in trying to frustrate his rivals in the Sanhedrin, Wanted to have Jesus beaten, but then he wanted him released. He'd concede, I'll let him be beaten, but after that, I'm letting him go. I'm calling the shots in that. That's the voice of Pilate in this narrative. Which, you know, Mike pointed out last week, that got the monkey cages rattling and and raging. And and they begin yelling for Jesus' death. And they're yelling for someone named Barabbas to be released. Now, Luke is really sparse with his details in this. So if we're just, you know, reading the surface of this, it makes no sense at all. Like, uh, who is Barabbas to the crowd, and why do they think Pilate would release him in place of Jesus? What's that all about? So that's where we've got to go to the other gospel accounts to get a better picture, to put the puzzle pieces together to see what's actually unfolding in this narrative. So if we go to Matthew chapters 27, it says, Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Now, there's there's no other historical record of this sort of holiday prisoner release uh, that's described here, but we know that the Romans made a lot of you know, uncharacteristic concessions to the Jewish people during Rome's occupation there. And so this appears to be one of them. The fact that we don't have any other historical corroboration doesn't negate the potential veracity of that. There's no reason to think, and I'm just saying, you know, just to get our thinking right on this, there's no reason to think that Pilate was nobly trying to rescue Jesus from a mob. He is likely just attempting to force the Jewish leaders to acknowledge their submission to him. And he trots out Barabbas, who is described as someone who committed murder during an insurrection. 
So in Israel in that time, this is important information to keep in mind. You know, it's easy to read over a little trial and not factor in everything that's going on here and realize what's at stake here. In Israel, during the time of the Roman occupation, there was a group of people who called themselves the Zealots. Who You've heard of the Zealots, right? And they were a group who stylized themselves as freedom fighters trying to resist the Roman occupation. They saw themselves like the heroes of the Maccabean revolt some 200 years earlier. You've heard us mention that before. But there was a splinter group within the Zealots who were called the Sicarii. And they were named after the thin blades that they would hide inside of their cloaks. And these guys went out randomly killing any Roman soldier or collaborator they could find, quickly stabbing them and then hiding their blade and slipping away into the crowd. Now, today, we'd call that person a religious extremist. They would be using IEDs instead of knives or plowing into crowds with a car. But there's a term that we have for them. What do we call them? Terrorists. Barabbas is a terrorist. And the religious leaders, it's so important to know this. The religious leaders we know from the rabbinical writings of that time hated these guys. They hated them. The average Jewish citizen hated these guys. Why? Because nobody was safe from them or the havoc that they brought down on any given community when they went out and did this destructive stuff. So when they go out and and kill someone, the Romans retaliate by harming the community. Nobody liked them. Nobody liked their extreme ways. So Luke is presenting the deep hypocrisy that's at work here, that the crowd and the religious leaders would ask for Barabbas' release and for Jesus' death. And so when Pilate pushes back and he's demanding that Jesus is innocent and the crowd gets specific and they demand that he crucify him. And I'm telling you, I I imagine that moment. That had to be a stunning moment. In my mind, Pilate takes a breath and steps back for a minute. This is unheard of. For Jewish people to call for this sort of punishment for one of their own Crucifixion was Rome's tool of intimidation. For them to call for its use took this whole proceeding to a new and dark and unnerving place. Pilate was looking for the upper hand in this, but clearly something strange was going on here, and it was teetering on the edge of catastrophe for him. So he cuts his losses, as any good politician would do. He gives in to the mob. And he sentenced Jesus to die, and he released Barabbas. But then Luke repeats himself in the section we read. He released Barabbas, the man in prison, for insurrection and murder. Jesus, the innocent man, is sent to his death, while Barabbas, the guilty murderer, while Barabbas, the terrorist, is set free. Barabbas... It's Barabbas, as we've come to say, but it should be pronounced Barabbas. He's present in all four Gospels, and he provides the same thing in each one of those narrative accounts, a picture of the nature of God's rescue and reconciliation with humanity. Jesus was substituted for Barabbas, the guilty one. Jesus was a substitute for us the guilty ones. 
all of humanity had come under the dominion of sin and evil ever since the fall as it was described in Genesis. Sin and evil permeated everything, permeates everything. Turn on the news. That's all you need. You hear that phrase all the time. Is the world in a bad state? (laughs) And, And everybody's got their own view on what constitutes the bad state Everybody's got their own opinion, but it continues to, to recycle and lives continue to get lost and pain continues to be propagated and, and oppression continues on in this world. Everything is permeated by this force of evil. It's ruined everything and figuratively it has kept us chained and imprisoned as human beings, separated from God, separated from being the humanity that we were meant to be that God created us to be. And that's how the whole New Testament describes the plight of humanity in this broken world, in bondage to sin and its consequence of death, a separation from the life of God. So Jesus substituted himself for us, taking the consequence of our choices and actions onto himself. Now, the theological term for this is atonement. Uh, And that means it's the means by which we are forgiven and reconciled with God and brought back into fellowship with him as a family. Atonement, the way to remember what atonement means is break down the word at one meant. It's the way that we are brought back at one uh, to be at one with God. Somehow in these events, Jesus was able to be substituted for us to take the consequences onto himself that we were due. And again, you've heard me say before, I can't explain the mechanics of it. Uh, But I do know in 1 Peter 3.18, it describes it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He took our place as the substitute. This was the divine exchange carried out fascinatingly beneath the surface of these evil religious and political games that were being played and the true power gets revealed through surrender through christ's willing surrender to it and again it just shows us the stark contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our god because power and envy and pride are the fuel of earthly kingdoms and division, oppression and death are always the exhaust of that engine. The strength of God's kingdom is revealed in sacrificial, reconciling love. That makes love our core mission. That same sacrificial, reconciling love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, that whoever would believe on him would not die, but have eternal life. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That's the core mission. But there's something else to note in this. There's a repeated word in this section. Don't know if you caught it. You wouldn't probably if you hadn't been staring at it. Luke is intentionally driving home a point. There's a word that's repeated five times in this, in this uh, uh, section of text, and it's the word release. Apoluo, which uh, means to, to be set free, but it also carries with it uh, part of its primary meaning to forgive, 
or to grant clemency. Barabbas was set free. He was released. He was free to go. Free. (laughs) And we get a picture here that Christ's substitution provides for our freedom in life. Something we don't want to lose sight of. Barabbas means son of the father. He stands in for all of humanity in this drama. When Jesus steps in as our substitute, the sinner goes free. We all go free. Free. This is one reason Luke has taken such pains to emphasize the guilt of those involved in Jesus' trial. He's making the narrative teach us something in this, that everyone is guilty. It's not just the temple leaders. It's not just conniving Pilate. It's not just the crowds. It's not just Barabbas. All of us are guilty. All of us complicit in the state of this broken world. The guilt of sin is universal. All of us played our part. The story of Barabbas provides the very first framework for atonement theory. And it didn't take a a scholar to get it either. Because the moment they unlocked that cell door and they called to Barabbas and said, come up out of there, someone named Jesus of Nazareth is going to the cross instead of you. The moment he walked into the sunlight again, he had a pretty good idea, a pretty good grasp of atonement theory, even if he probably couldn't have uh, uh, articulated it. The reason Luke is putting such a sharp focus on this is that through the sacrifice of Jesus, the possibility of real freedom has been offered to all of humanity. Jesus dies in the place of the sinner and the sinner is released, set free. What are those things? What are those chains that we still allow? to hang over our necks and around our wrists. Let them go. God didn't place them there on you. Jesus took them off of you. Let them go. When Barabbas stepped out of that cell, he had no way of realizing that an innumerable host of people were following behind him. We're there. I'm there in that parade of prisoners released. They've stepped out into the sunlight because Jesus stepped into our place. It's wonderful and it's beautiful, but it's oh so costly, as we'll see when the story continues on over the weeks. But the result is we're free in Christ. Our relationship with God is not dependent on us doing enough good that it somehow offsets the bad. It's not hinged on how well or how poorly we do this at all. It all rests on the substitute, on Jesus. Because all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've all left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Isaiah 53. This is the horrifying and beautiful picture of God. Providing for us what we never could have provided for ourselves. Delivering the guilty from their guilt. And removing the consequences of that guilt by his love. Through the gift of His grace. We didn't earn this. 
We didn't do anything to make it happen. We can only gratefully receive it by believing the good news of his love, which is revealed in the cross. Why it's central to everything. Now, it's something that I have to do. It's not what I want to do, because I want us to, to rest on that. But the years have taught me that I've got to qualify my statements on this. We talk about freedom and all. And listen, we do not earn our place or God's love, our place with God or God's love for us. We do not earn it by good works. But that doesn't mean that God's intent for us is somehow nebulous. God's intent for us is to, to, to live out the reality of that deliverance we've been given. To live in a way that cooperates with that redemption of our lives. Not to continue on in the broken patterns that destroy and dehumanize, but to rise up to all the good that God wants to draw out of us and put on display in this world. This is something, though, that mere religion could never do. Just like Indiana Jones, those substitutes always spring the trap. It never works. None of the broken systems of this world provide what Jesus has done for us by being our substitute. None of them could reconcile us back to that place with God, with that contented, satisfied sense that I know who I am. I know who I belong to. I know where I'm going. And thus, I'm secure. Jesus, not religion or religious performance, provides our release from the bondage of sin. This is honestly what I believe sets the gospel apart from almost every other system. This picture of Christ's willingness to take our place reveals God's great love for humanity. His love for you and I. After all of these years of the gospel being present and the church being representative of it, it's amazing to me how, you know, how I still fall into those patterns of confusing my understanding of who God is or what this is all about. It's so easy. I mean, honestly, it's like the air we breathe. It's so easy to fall back into, into systems of, of behavioral management and assuming that that's what God is all about. Assuming that God's whole purpose was to get a bunch of people to straighten up and, and get out there and straighten everybody else up. But that just woefully does such a disgrace to the cross, to what it really was about. A creator God who loves us like parent, like a parent would love a child, who loves us and wants us reconciled with him. That great love is on display in this. I was so moved last week when Mike was was sharing about how God intervened in his life and, and spoke to him, how God had been longing for him to, to, to reach out to him so that he could express to him how much he loved him. And I hear that story repeated a lot here. It's such a simple message, but it's such a, a profound impact on our lives. Uh, you know, it's a message that ties so many of our stories together in this place. I've talked to a lot of different people who've had similar experiences where God communicates even above and beyond what his word already communicates. This, this reality of his love 
for us. I mean, it was Jesus stating his unqualified love for me that started me on this path of wanting to, to, you know, participate in church and lead in some way or teach. I've talked with so many of you who've had the same kind of story of God revealing his love for us. That simple communication of God's love for us communicated, communicated in so many ways through so many different personalities. And yet it is as consistent as it is life-changing when we put it together with the drumbeat of the gospel from the moment it was announced to this very day. The consistent message of Creator God, I love you. I love you. You run from me. You hide from me. You paint me in all kinds of masks that I never created. But I love you. I'll step into your place. I love you. It's the core message of the gospel. So, What's our challenge? Our challenge is to receive that love. You've heard me say before, and I'll keep saying it, I guess, until I run out of air. Uh, But if we will start with that premise that we are loved by God, it will change everything else. Let's start there and then see how God shapes us, shapes one another as we do community together. Let's embrace all the possibilities of his love for us that we see revealed in our substitute Jesus. And let's, you know, let's not abuse the grace that's been shown us. Let's allow his love to reshape us in who we were meant to be. Not through our, not through our efforts to try to earn something from God, but because we know we're loved. We want to be better people. Let's be witnesses to what God's love can do in this world. Right on? All right, before we stand up, or, well, maybe, yeah, actually stand up for a minute. All right, now sit down. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, we've got, uh, we got a, a family uh, here in the church who is going to be heading out to South Sudan. This is their last Sunday before they go on that mission trip. And uh, so Kim and Tucker and Allie, are you, aren't you going? Okay, will you come on up here, please? You looked at me like as if I was insane. Which is not unreasonable, but in this case, I'm trying to say something. All right. Can I get some of you guys to kind of gather around here? And let's just, let's just send these guys out with uh, God's blessing on them. And, and uh, they're going out to do this very thing that we talked about, this demonstration of God's love. They're going to South Sudan. They're going to be part, participating in a medical mission. And this is, you know, this is uh, Indeed in Truth Ministries. And Susie goes here. And we've been a part of this for a long time. So we're just believing that good things are going to happen. So, Father, right now, we just pray for this precious family that's, that's heading out so very far away from home to do this one thing, to demonstrate your love for the human race. And so, Father, we pray right now that you empower them that you provide them what they need, the strength, the endurance, the stamina, the wisdom, all that they need to go into a place that can sometimes be very harsh, to be able to demonstrate your good love, your great love for the human race. Let everything that they do communicate that. Let every word they speak communicate that. And we pray, Father, that you pour into them what they can receive from the people of Tanj. Pour into them the, the, the blessings that the people of Tanj, our brothers and sisters there, have to reveal to them. And we pray, Lord, that you keep them safe, you watch over them and protect them, 
get them safely there and bring them safely home to us. But Father, right now, we send them out in the name of Jesus Christ to do the good work of the kingdom of God. So, Holy Spirit, come and do that good work through them. We pray this in Jesus' 